the Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you The Meat of the Word Q&A with Martin Salbretti, Vice President of the Chalcedon Foundation. Join Martin as he conducts regular Q&A sessions on topics of interest to Christians serious about their faith. These Q&A sessions will continue to cover an ever-widening range of topics, all with an eye to honoring the command to let all things be done unto edification. Well, I see that we're broadcasting live again from Georgetown, Texas. This is Martin Cerbetti. I'm the Vice President of the Chalcedon Foundation. And we're here for episode apparently number 59 on December 2nd, 2018, uh, Chalcedon Q&A and a Little Meat of the Word, where we take your questions. Some of them come in in advance online, uh, and uh, the rest come in live. And uh, we spend the next hour, usually not more than that, uh, discussing what's going on with you all and what we can do in terms of uh, providing answers where possible to the questions that you're asking. So we do what we best we can, but um, sometimes we don't do so well. That's okay. Uh, yeah, we're human. We're fallible. Only God's Word is infallible. So um, also a couple of notices. If you want to send your questions in, email your questions to ask.calcedon at calcedon.edu. Hi, Bill, Becky. Glad to have you all here. Uh, and also, final notice, tomorrow is a Book of the Month Club broadcast, where we'll be, or podcast, audio cast, where we'll be discussing the foundations of social order, the creeds and councils of the early church. I will be hosting that with Andrea Schwartz, and that'll be tomorrow. If you haven't signed up, go ahead and, uh, Ogden, Utah, is that right, Bill? Wow, you get around. Go ahead and sign up. I'm sure Ground Control will put up the link. If you uh, haven't read the book, it still might be worthwhile to hear people discussing it. It might encourage you to get a copy and realize how important a volume and unique a book by Rushdoony that is, The Foundations of Social Order, which we'll be discussing tomorrow night. All right, so let's deal first with the questions that came in online. I have four of them, and then we'll take live questions, if there are any. Okay, I think this came from Roger Oliver. Would you kindly give us a short list, a kind of rules of thumb, of, to identify pseudo-scholarship? High-sounding academic language seems to be a characteristic of heretics through the ages, notably Arius and Arminius, as I have read recently. Thanks, Roger. So, uh, certainly, uh, what is involved here is critical thinking and the realization that um, lots of folks, unfortunately, have agendas, and those agendas then color the data. This, in other words, presuppositionalism, worldviews change the interpretation of data. Uh, and lots of folks in the, in the interest of an agenda are willing to tw uh, twist the truth uh, or bend the data to a desired result. And the more this happens in academia, where people are supposed to trust the gold guys in the white coats, uh, the more the crisis of faith comes. Um, then if you can't even trust the experts, who do you trust? Who's going to fact-check the fact-checkers, as we said before? And, uh, now, this is not to say that a college critical thinking course is not usually decent so far as it goes. The intention for them is to have you dis determine whether something is formal logic or informal logic, and the nature of the argument, and the warrants for it, and then to weigh them properly and determine. Now, if you don't know all the data, if you don't know, all the, if you don't know the contrary evidence, then you cannot put 
Proverbs 18:17 into effect, right? First comes who present their case seems right until another comes to examines him. So what has to happen then is a proper, full exchange of ideas, and then perhaps you might be in a position to weigh it or not weigh it. And we often don't get that. We get a very one-sided version. We're told that certain positions do not deserve a place at the table. They're to be deplatformed. Creationism is being deplatformed through the legal process, for example, through the courts. So the more that this transpires, the less likelihood that you're going to see any challenges to prevailing ideas that are being pushed uh, very heavily with an agenda. Uh, I'm going to read a little thing. I, I uh, had this on a slide of mine uh, in a recent uh, World Review conference in Pennsylvania. And uh, this is from Charles Sykes. And Charles Sykes wrote a book called A Prof Scam. If you don't have a copy, it might be worth getting it. And he uh, writes the following. This is about goes on in academia and universities. My fellow professors, uh, and some of these are bracketed because their uh, context make clear what he's talking about. My fellow professors are overpaid, grotesquely underworked. They have distorted university curriculums to accommodate their own narrow and selfish interests. They have cloaked their scholarship in stupefying, inscrutable jargon. Bad teaching goes unnoticed and unsanctioned, and good teaching is penalized. They have turned the American universities into vast factories of junk think. Professors agree to certify the students. In return, the students agree not to blow the whistle on the faculty. And to this day, no one's blowing the whistle on the faculty except the outsiders, the dissidents, if you will. Uh, so not an easy thing to do. The good news is that the Internet essentially had a tremendous leveling force so long as folks at Facebook decide we're not going to deplatform or shadow ban folks because all of a sudden the, the, the great leveler is then sh shifted out of gear and prevented from doing any kind of uh, interrogation, cross-examination of evidence. Certain positions then become uh, illegitimate in advance and you're not allowed to even explore those things, not allowed to go down those, those alleys. And this occurs uh, primarily because people are protecting their existing stake in the status quo. Uh, I think uh, Kuhn uh, made a good point when he wrote The Nature of Scientific Revolution, saying that the existing paradigms are protected because everyone is getting their grant money and is being supported because they're working within that paradigm. And so as uh, evidence accumulates that the paradigm is faulty, that it's wrong, uh, it takes some time before finally things snap the other direction. In other words, is you're adding camels to the uh, straws to the camels back, and finally it is able to snap, and you have the paradigm shift phrase, apparently coined by Thomas Kuhn in that book. And that means that scientific revolutions don't necessarily follow the general what people would expect. You know, science is self-correcting, which means it's always wrong <laughs> if it's always self-correcting. Uh, but the scripture gives us a very, very different sound basis for thinking. So. Uh, I don't know if there's any series of rules of thumb. Simply, if you have questions, find the people who are um, challenging the status quo and see if they make sense. After all, there's money to be made for being a, uh, a critic of things, too. Uh, a position might be completely correct, and folks can then generate a whole bunch and uh, troll it. You know? If you don't know about trolling, there's an interesting uh, podcast, video cast by Scott Adams ca called his first uh, Troll College, where he explains how you can take an intelligent uh, position like Einstein seeing, saying E equals MC squared was the example he gave, and then all the trolling responses to it, like that the person who said it is an idiot and gives a list of how you can discredit a, uh, perhaps a very, very true position and, and attack it, and how that's done in social media and basically 
you have the Vox Populi, Vox Dei, the voice of the multitude is the voice of God. Uh, sadly, a lot of people buy that. Unless you are anchored to the scripture, you might buy it too. So, there you go. Uh, I think Kevin Amundsen asked this question, do IQ tests mean anything? Is there a Christian basis for measuring intelligence in terms of standardized intelligence? So, of course, now we're talking about statistical things. Uh, the scriptures are equally clear that the race is not to the swift, you know, or the fight to the strong. And I don't think that uh, in light of these antinomies that are laid forth in scripture, and that was actually from Ecclesiastes, uh, and elsewhere in scripture, that uh, you can necessarily say that um, there's a basis for which intelligence therefore conquers all. That is not necessarily the case. Yeah, the only thing in Scripture that seems to have a anything close to a guarantee of a, a conquest, if you will, is diligence. Diligence is a very different thing than in intelligence. In fact, Dr. Rushdoony in several of his books talks about the fact that he's known many, many very, very bright, intelligent people, and this did not stop them from being complete failures in life. So uh, it's a merely a matter of how you apply that intelligence, and. Uh, the other point, of course, is that intelligence measurement was a pretext or a kind of a, a tool being used to push, push again another humanistic agenda because now we're going to start sorting and, and, and making people who's the better hu homo sapiens, the one the more intelligent homo sapiens, obviously, is a, a Baltimore and junk like that. And so that's used in the service of um, eugenic theory and um, that, things like that. Well, it looks like the sun's coming in over there. I might have to move the camera a little bit if that persists. Hope it doesn't bother you folks. Oh, okay, Doug Baldwin, good to have you here. So, uh, an intelligent test is not as important as uh, faithfulness to Scripture, because when people are faithful, then the, what they, when they show themselves that they can be faithful in little things, then they're given um, dominion over big things, right? And that's the step. It's got nothing to do with intelligence. Intelligence, therefore, is kind of vastly overrated because it is turns out not to be as good an index as people would have thought for the success in life, or even a success in academia for that matter. Some folks who uh, would look to have do not so well on a test. By the way, even a, an intelligence test by, its way, by the way it's structured is going to favor a certain kind of thinking over another kind of thinking. Uh, therefore, if they're going to have any kind of legitimacy at all, which is doubtful, they would need to be very, very widespread and deal with, say, um, three-dimensional thinking, um, spatial uh, relationships, uh, and basically at that point it becomes like an aptitude test. And people who might, uh, and again, what's the goal? It looks like whoever's running the test is going to tell you what you're best at and what you should do, and perhaps it's going to be assigned to you. This makes sense in a central planning economy like the old Soviet Union, where they, they measure and test and say, oh, you're good at this, you're going to be such and so, and you're going to do this and that. Um, what was it that Mr. Uh, Friston who's probably the most cited, um, has the highest H-factor citation for twice that of Einstein in academic papers. He's probably the most, one of the most cited academicians in the world, a specialist in neurology and uh, imaging of the mind, things like that. Uh, he took this just kind of a test, and they said, I think, what was it that he was going to be? Uh, it was something ridiculously far afield uh, that had nothing to do with what he actually was good at and where he's likely to get a Nobel Prize in. Uh, so the, the failures of the tests are rampant, and they're always covered over, and everyone is simply told to trust the test. So they're not very, very useful. Certainly not you know, useful from my point of view. 
uh, I do know what my number is, but all it is is they, they give you these tests and they say, okay, you're going to, uh, this is your mm, in mental age versus your physical age. That's why it's called an intelligence quotient. The division, you divide one by the other and it gives you a number. Like, uh, and you take that quotient and multiply by 100. So if you're, um, You've got the mind of a 12-year-old when you're 10, then you have an IQ of 120, so they say. How this works when you are older, doesn't they don't tell you that, right? Because as an IQ, it becomes less and less valuable. Uh, some of the people that they believe had very high IQs seem to be very, very intelligent, and some of them who contributed to, to our culture or society, at least in the Western world, it looks a little different in Eastern thinking, uh, you might say, okay, uh, maybe you, uh, Johann Goethe was pretty intelligent. Uh, I guess he really, tends to be ranked way above 200 in those scores. But uh, the, the question is, what is the purpose of the measurement? And it's usually for central planning, and that's the purpose it serves in most cultures. All right. But I don't think they mean as much as what Scripture says other things mean. And that's the other point. Bill Evans said it, there's a definition there involved. They're humanistic. Uh, and uh, has nothing to do with this, you know, calling. There's no such thing as calling because the state's supposed to determine determine what you're best at. This is not something that God has predetermined from all eternity that you know you're going to be a good tent maker. And while you're at it, I think I'll make you the apostle to the Gentiles. No IQ test would have revealed that concerning Saul of Tarsus. Here's a question we get maybe every two or three months, and so we'll take it on again. Is it? And each one is time is phrased a little different. This is our third out of four questions. Is it presumptuous to say that all babies that have been aborted are in heaven? This really become, comes down to the question, are infant, those who die in infancy saved? That's the general question. Now, most folks who answer yes to this question attempt to reason from positive statements in Scripture, like um, his tender mercies extend over all the works of his hands. And, and so they can say, you, from this position of God's goodness, then it would follow, even from a Calvinistic position, that they would be saved, that we would harbor this presumption, if you will, that they are saved, based on a positive presentation from scriptures. Now, at the best you can get is a strong sense that of that. What we are not saying is that children are innocent. They are not. They are have Adam's sin and, uh, and uh, are hell-prone uh, as anyone else. So they would need the atoning blood of Christ, uh, and they need to, be, need to be vessels of mercy. So the question is, how would we know that one way or the other? I believe that there is a text in Scripture, which is Romans 9.22, that answers this question from the other side. Romans 9.22 tells us what it takes for us to get to become a vessel of wrath fitted to destruction. And let me read that passage to you. What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction, continues on, that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had afore prepared unto glory, even us whom he hath called, not the Jews only, but also the Gentiles. So notice this in verse 22. The wrath of God is to be put upon vessels of wrath. And how are they described? They're fitted to description, but they said God endured them, endured them. Now, not only does it say he endured them, he said he endured them with long-suffering. And not only does it say he endured with long-suffering, that's a triple threat, endured them with much long-suffering, much long-suffering. So whatever else is true about a vessel of wrath, God has endured their existence and their defiance of him with much long-suffering, and this shows his power and his wrath. 
So a vessel of wrath is someone that God has endured their rebellion against him with much long-suffering. That's the qualification to be a vessel of wrath. Another, and if you're not a vessel of wrath, there's only two categories. There's no in, uh, limbus infantum, as in Roman Catholicism, because they said we don't know where to put the kids. We'll put them in this circle of the, the underworld instead. No, if they're not vessels of wrath and they don't qualify under Romans 9.22, because having been aborted, they, God could not have possibly endured them with much long-suffering. Notice all three, enduring them, which endurance always involves the length of time, and with long-suffering, which is continual uh, provocation, and then with much long-suffering. It's like that string of negatives in Genesis 6 about you know, the, every uh, thought of the imagination of men was evil continually. You have all these compounded things. So too here in Romans 9, endured with much long-suffering. That's what a vessel of wrath has to have to qualify as a vessel of wrath. You know as a vessel of wrath because God has endured their rebellion and they've earned their wrath through God's long-suffering, much long-suffering. The aborted do not have this qualification. Therefore, they're vessels of mercy. They receive no mercy at the hands of the abortionists. They reserved death. They, 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 they uh, suffered grievously with surgical instruments that by right should have been used for healing people and instead are used to kill. And uh, consequently, they received nothing but evil on this side of the grave. But God did not endure them with any kind of long-suffering whatsoever. Now, the abortionist is a different story, but the aborted individual is rather a vessel of mercy. And we conclude this simply because they don't qualify as a vessel of wrath. So I think the correct answer to this would follow not from looking for how good God is, but rather, what's it take to go to hell and, uh, and not be saved? And the answer is, the answer is here put in Romans 9.22. Those, the vessels of wrath are those that God has endured with much long-suffering. Consequently, we can conclude that the aborted are saved. This, they're, they're not saved by being aborted. They're aborted because they don't qualify as vessels of wrath. Not because they're innocent. They're not innocent. Okay, clear here. They deserve hell just like anyone else. But they are vessels of mercy. Therefore, God covers their sin with the blood of the Son. And therefore, they are qualified as a vessel of mercy and not a vessel of wrath. And I think that is an uh, argument that has, is pretty strong because you cannot shoehorn in the aborted infants into the category that spec specified in Romans 9.22. And here is where Paul is spending a lot of time talking about mercy and wrath. It's the passage in Scripture that you would go to and gravitate toward to understand this thing. So from everything that I can tell looking at the Scripture, there's a strong negative argument that those who are aborted do not qualify as vessels of wrath. This by uh, no means clears the people who murdered them, saying, well, I murdered them and they're going to heaven now, so you should thank me. No, God's going to then still uh, deal with them appropriately for having murdered the innocent and the helpless in the womb of all places. A place that should have been a, a safe haven is where a death chamber instead. So men who turned the, the goodness of God into uh, an evil, cruel atrocity, they will pay. Nonetheless, the victims will not pay because they don't qualify as vessels of wrath. So, I think that's an interesting discussion. Uh, lots of times we, um, if you weren't aware of that text, you might, and you were a strong Calvinist, you'd say, well, we don't rush in and say what God can and cannot do. Uh, therefore, we can't say, and uh, since they didn't profess faith in Christ, they probably are going to hell. Of course, 
we're doing, we're inventing reasons and we're leaning on our partial understanding to arrive at that. So I think that looking at the whole counsel of God, particularly the passages that deal exactly with this question, what is a vessel of wrath, that will resolve the problem better than just jumping in and saying, we don't know. Uh, um, scripture does not say, I think Scripture has something positive to say about this question here in Romans 9.22. It says that if you overlook it, you will say, Scripture says nothing. You know, this pattern of saying, you know, the Scriptures don't teach X, Y, or Z, when in fact maybe the Scriptures do, <laughs> is, uh, is a, it even happened to the Pharisees and scribes, right? They tell Nicodemus, search and see, no prophet ariseth out of Galilee. This is in John 7, right? They're challenging him, saying, you know, there's no way that this man's the Messiah because search and see, no scripture, you know, the scriptures don't tell us anything about a prophet arising out of Galilee. And it is flat out wrong. It's a wrong statement. It's right there in the first seven uh, verses of Daniel 9. <laughs> On the Sea of Galilee, the Gentiles, a great light has shined into the darkness, and then comes the promise of the sun and, the, uh, and uh, his government extending and growing without end. So it's right there in the scriptures, and people still said it's not in scripture. The people who were in charge, who had the oracles of God, claimed the Bible does not teach this, that any such Messiah comes from Galilee. And there it is, plain Jane, right there. Ooh, someone cannot find the Q&A, but I have nine listeners. Uh, any issues here with folks sitting? I just had one of my usual, Diane Williamson, was trying to reach in and get connected here. And I heard uh, similar issues with... Um, it might just be her having the problem because I know she couldn't get even into the uh, the chapel lesson by Mark Rushtuni. That he used the First Amendment incorrectly in defending, quote, our rights, unquote, since it is written to limit the federal government, not the people. Uh, and that's a very, very good point. If the second that you start to couch it that the government gives you rights, then, of course, then the government's got the power to take away. Job um, made it very clear, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away, right? Uh, things like life, liberty, freedom, your, our estate in the world, uh, because he owns everything and has full property rights in his creation, including humans. But the state does not. Um, perhaps uh, Ground Control can uh, send a link over to Diane Williamson, because she's obviously on Facebook and be able to uh, send a, a message my way during the live broadcast, but she's not able to get in. So if Ground Control could give her a helping hand. I'd better and if you can't, then you can't, then she'll just have to catch it afterward. But I always hate to see one of my uh, more faithful viewers not being able to get in to the front door here, as it were. So, right, we do not want to uh, assert that this document is giving us, all right, so what it is, oh, good, thank you, Ground Control. Uh, what we want to assert, rather, that they acknowledge pre-existing rights, right? If they're inalienable, then it's not that they're, ina they're inalienable before a document like the Constitution or the uh, Declaration is written. Those rights pre-exist, and they inhere in us by virtue of being created by God in His image. And that image, though marred and defective, defiled in us, nonetheless is still there. Great, got to have Diane back. So, right, we, the second we start to use the language of the uh, legal positivists as if the law, the law itself and the government is the bestower of rights, we've now made that the god of the system, right? Because uh, then god, our, the true god has no place because he is also going to be restricted in terms of what they'll allow him to have. He's going to just be ghettoized as a consequence. So we should be mindful of our language because once we let slip certain things, it's very, very hard to get them back. And we don't want to 
fall into the trap of the other side and start to think the way they think, uh, with the kind of double think that Orwell warned, warned about. And so uh, when you have a right being proscribed or limited that is laid out as a protected uh, area in the Bill of Rights, say, uh, you must, when you make your protest, it must not be terms of this this document gave me a right and you're taking it away. It's rather that I have rights that this document acknowledged um, and you, without authority and in violation of the God document, the Bill of Rights, have tried to take away what is inalienably mine, right? Life, liberty, things. By the way, about that third right, pursuit of happiness, that's not the original that was being debated in the Constitutional Committee. Rather, they had life, liberty, and the property. Property it was foundational to the concept of liberty. And the most important property right is the property right in your own conscience. Liberty of conscience is, is critical, that no one can bind the conscience except God himself. So these were, uh, this was then changed, as Rashtuni points out, to this more vague, meaningless phrase, pursuit of happiness, which, what is that? And the second that they didn't have property in there, then, of course, that acknowledgement has become weakened, and we have eminent domain issues today, which are discussed particularly in um, Christianity in the State by Rashtuni, which we'll be doing a Book of the Month Club next year on. I think I'm leading Christianity. If, am I? I one, so one of us is. <laughs> I saw the list just recently, and I can't remember. A lot of names on the list. A lot of new people are going to be helping us out with the Book of the Month Club stuff. Okay, let's see. Okay, can you suggest a good resource regarding the proper use of the Bill of Rights? I can probably um, come up with one and discuss it or, or um, post it ex post facto here to this chain afterward. Rashtuni deals with it here and there, uh, and it certainly is in his discussions on the U.S. Constitution, but it is it, it is happens in passing, and... Uh, I think there may have been a discussion of it in the book Sovereignty, but I'm not totally positive. And also, this independent republic and nature of the American system probably deal with it. But I want to give you a more uh, laser beam focused book rather than a blunderbuss, which I just provided you, um, since it doesn't come to mind that there's any specific chapter that I can point to on this, like I could have pointed to with um, uh, the question of uh, that we had earlier in Christianity, the state about eminent domain. So. Uh, I will go ahead and provide that, and um, sometime later today I will go ahead and post it at the end of this um, Facebook post, and you can find it there. Thank you for the question, though. All right, I think we have completed most of the discussion here. Again, the, d the danger here is, again, uh, as uh, commented, it took some time before the uh, amendments, instead of restricting the federal government, started to grant powers. So, you know, the, it used to be shall not, shall not abridge this, shall not do this, shall not. And then eventually we moved to more positive law, shall have the power. So instead of cramping its style, it starts to expand cancerously, it metastasizes in terms of its overreach. And that's what happens. You start to feed your false god, which is the state, and it grows and expands to the point that it, it subsumes all things underneath its umbrella. And, of course, it makes a very, very bad God, but it makes a very, very good hell. And uh, if there's such thing as a, 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 a qualified, <laughs> competent hell, where all the things that you expect of hell are there in spades. Let's see, here's a question that popped up. Let me pin it. 
what degree were these men influenced by Locke and Aristotle as, say, versus uh, Rutherford, um, Montesquieu, uh, Puffendorf, Grotius? All of these folks had brought some elements of earlier thinkers in. They, reckon, they were smart enough not to recognize that Plato's Republic was not what they wanted. <laughs> uh, but then, uh, and there's been negative and positive on Locke, let's put that. There are, if you ground control may be able to find this, there was a book by, about Jonathan Locke, John Locke, that was uh, written by Mary Elaine Swanson, who worked with Dr. Marshall Foster. Uh, the late uh, Miss Swanson had written a book in, in defense of uh, Locke. Now, Locke gets a lot of negative press from R.J. Rushdoney, particularly starting with the tabula rasa, the notion that when we're born, we're a blank slate, and therefore things can be written on us to, to shape us. And Rushdoney's view is we are not a blank slate. We are already uh, have a mindset against God. We were born sinners, if you will. We're born uh, bent, uh, to use C.S. Lewis's phrase. And uh, that's very, very different than the tabula rasa. And uh, so Lee Dwiggin, one of our book reviewers, reviewed the book by Mary Elaine Swanson, and uh, I gave him some material from Rushdoney's point of view so that he could write a balanced point, saying here's the negatives, here's the positives. If you only read Rushdoney, you'll see nothing but negatives about John Locke. If you only read Mary Elaine Swanson, you're only going to see the positives. But the truth is somewhere in the middle. Uh, there are weaknesses in Locke. Rushdoney's very good at exposing those. And there's positive things about him and Swanson, uh, who uh, made her him her life study, uh, brings those out. The truth is somewhere in between. Sometimes Rush is right, sometimes Swanson is right. So, in other words, this is a more complex figure in history than most people are willing to acknowledge. And so we, with uh, deference, say, uh, here's the evidences on both sides, here's the weaknesses, and then you can put together a more complete picture of Locke. And therefore, if it's more informed, you won't necessarily throw a baby out with the bathwater. Uh, now, if I had to choose between the two positions, I'd say, okay, the hazardous parts of Locke, we've already inherited a lot of that, and people are... Uh, but also they violate a lot of what Locke's positions were, and he's been misrepresented in certain respects. So uh, there we go. So that's a very, very good question. Uh, what was the other fellow that was being marked in that pin? Aristotle. Okay, Aristotle. Uh, it, was, it was Aquinas and um, the other fellow, Thomas of, um, it's going to come to me in a minute. Well, two folks were appointed by the Pope to Christianize Aristotle. And these uh, individuals, uh, uh, scholars, their task was to essentially embrace and take Aristotle into the Christian faith. And this was really an oil and water mix, clay and iron, if you will, and was not, not a good idea. And it wasn't until the Puritans that the flaws in this notion of bringing Aristotle into play uh, is going to create issues. John Owen made it clear, he says, there is not a scrap of ethics in Aristotle's Nicomachean ethics. And uh, I've quoted this a lot because it's a profound statement by John Owen, who was a good go-to guy on Aristotle in terms of the flaws in Aristotle and the dangers of Aristotle. He says, you know, we study these era old philosophers with the same, for the same reason that a chemist studies poisons, namely to find the antidote. 
So in his view, the only legitimate study of Aristotle was to see what's wrong and poisonous and toxic about it that can infect and harm uh, Christian thinking. And Aristotelianism does harm Christian thinking. Uh, and Van Til, of course, uh, put the final coffin nails into Aristotelian thinking uh, better, in my view, than Doiweer did. So uh, that's very, very important to realize that a lot of the foundational frameworks that influenced some of the founding fathers, some, not all, uh, are Aristotelian thinking and Lockean philosophy, and uh, that meant that whatever was right in those came in, but also the bad things popped in with it. And then the, it didn't take long for the weaknesses to be uh, exposed, because when you pre put pressure on a governmental structure, then its flaws are going to be made obvious. And in this case, we inherited the flaws of that. Now, John Witherspoon, who's one of the folks that had put together and was uh, on the ground floor of the writing, say, of the um, Constitution, uh, he had a very, very different take and was not an Aristotelian, so far as anyone could tell. Uh, at least he, he understood John Owens' critique on it. And we have an article about, on John Witherspoon that appeared in a journal of Christian Reconstruction on uh, the Constitution and political theory. I imagine that Ground Control can put up a link to that particular uh, Journal of Christian Reconstruction, again, on Symposium on the Constitution and Political Theology, I think it was the theology, and uh, there's a fantastic article about Witherspoon on it, and it also might resolve some of these questions about the Bill of Rights that had been posed earlier in the question. So, you know, to what degree were these men influenced by Locke and Aristotle? Uh, to a significant degree. Be, uh, but there was also a lesser influence of um, Samuel Rutherford's Lex Rex. <coughs> Some people say it's been misunderstood, in fact, uh, or, or been pushed up. Like they say, well, Rushdoony emphasizes Rutherford, but Rutherford's actual influence back in that era was relatively small. If you look at the number of quotations, the H factor, right? We talked about that earlier. How many times is someone actually cited as a source? And it's true that Locke would be cited more often than Rutherford. But the other question is, to what extent was there a subterranean influence of Rutherford as they're working? It might not be that they were citing Lex Rex, but the principles of Lex Rex as a worldview uh, were present in the thinking of the Founding Fathers, many of them, except the Deists, probably, who uh, were sold out to a different system. But they were in the minority and knew they were in the minority. So they tended to play nice during the time that the, these things were done. And remember, we were assembling 13 colonies, at least 12 of which were Christian commonwealths, together, and so the principle of federalism was we're not going to touch what already exists in these Christian commonwealths. They will continue to operate. Federalism is simply the principle in which these 12, 13 colonies can coordinate together for certain mutual benefits to one another. So it's only in that respect. No state rights were supposed to be um, abridged or truncated as a result of that process. It wasn't until later that uh, various decisions and precedents came in and federalism was was tanked because now people think in terms of the biggest government is the strongest government is the one that really matters and that is not what the original constitutionalist thinking was under federal theory. Uh, federal comes from the Latin fetus which simply is the word for a covenant or a league so technically it's a covenantal arrangement so these uh, 13 Christian commonwealths co covenanted together and they put restrictions on what that covenant was and uh, but we've come so far away and it's really like a dead letter like many people treat the bible as a dead letter if you're not going to fear god you're not going to fear the founders of the united states either nor should you fear men anyway because that's a snare but the point is you won't even care what they said you can simply say the constitution is is a dead letter to us and uh, 
it's funny, dead letter, but we say it's a living document, which is to say it's a dead letter. <laughs> the irony there in that phrase is just stunning to me, that is the case. Okay. Uh, let's see whether any... Oh, Christina Kerr. I imagine that um, when I mentioned Mary Lane Swanson, that it would have been heartening to um, to Ronald Kirk, my uh, my own old co-belligerent and fellow warrior, um, who was involved in the publication, I believe, of uh, Mary Lane Swanson's book, which Lee Dwiggins review came up here. There's that uh, JCR. Thank you, Ground Control, for putting it up there. Volume 12, number one, Symposium on the Constitution and Political Theory. And, of course, we have more uh, books in 2019 coming up for um, discussion on the Book of the Month Club. Aha, there it is, the very correct link for it. Like I said, if you want to still sign up for tomorrow's, which I'll be leading on the Foundations of Social Order, there is still time to sign up. Uh, I know because I just signed up myself yesterday. you got to sign up to be hosted. As, uh, and it turns out it's, it's, they're funny that way, these, these um, software systems that allow us to communicate so wonderfully with one another. Any other questions pending? And I'll ask Ground Control to let me know what the time is, because today I do not have a clock on me, like I did a couple weeks ago. And while we're on the topic of book of Q&As, um, due to the fact that I have one of my sons being married uh, very, very shortly, I, we will be taking the next two Q&As off. December 9th and December 16th, we will not be broadcasting a Chalcedon Q&A after Mark's uh, chapel services, but we will resume broadcasting on the 23rd of December, just before Christmas, and December 30th, and into January, the new year. All right, so the answer is none yet. We have a 20 more minutes. Well, that means that we've been zooming through the material very, very quickly. So if there are any more questions, now is the time to bring them up. By the way, one of the um, nice things about uh, Dr. Rashtuni's book, The Foundations of Social Order, is that he really sets the tone up front in the very first chapter. Uh, and I think it's very, very significant because he says, essentially the Apostles' Creed is setting forth a philosophy of history. It is not talking about ideas. It's talking about what things, actual events, and personages in history that changed and shaped history. It is a, in other words, the Apostles' Creed puts forward a, uh, haha, I wouldn't mind doing that, puts forward a, uh, a historic faith by definition. So the second that people start to make Christianity ahistoric or set it in a mythological time, like Barth tended to do, uh, we have no longer anywhere near the Apostles' Creed, nor the faith once delivered to the saints as a consequence. And a lot of folks want to treat Christianity as an ethical system, the teachings of Jesus. And we see it all the time when, uh, on, on, on social media where people are, who we know are, probably couldn't possibly be Christian, except in name, maybe, are quoting Jesus and saying, no one seems to understand what Jesus is saying, and they're really saying it's an ethical system, you should adopt it, what Jesus would do, etc. And they don't realize that the faith is actually about history itself. It's a whole different ballgame. Thank you, uh, Ground Control. That is the book, Foundations of Social Order. We can certainly, we, it's online, available to read for free uh, in Script D, I imagine, still. And uh, it would take well, maybe a bit to read it by tomorrow night, but it'd be worth it, I can guarantee you. And even if you don't get all the way through it, you're going to want to then participate in the Book of the Month Club discussion tomorrow uh, because there are ways for us to actually open up and discuss the implications, the book, uh, and 
this book is important in particular because there's almost nothing else like it. It's unique in the uh, annals of late 20th century Christendom in terms of setting forth uh, the implications of the, of the biblical position on the Trinity uh, and the Son of God and his entrance into history and the implications as they actually play themselves out in the world of the politics. This is why Molly Worthen, who um, talked to, wrote an article, she was not necessarily friendly to, to Reconstruction, but she's a scholar, and uh, I commented on her on one of my um, articles that was published in Faith of Far Life. Uh, she said that um, scholars today, theologians, do not actually understand what was going on with the ancient creeds, as Rushdie alone seems to get it correctly, that they had political implications because it was a philosophy of history that's being set forth. And so that's, that's huge. And uh, this particular book is excellent in laying forth that action. So she said, most people think Rushdie read too many, too much into, say, the Chalcedon Council of 451. She says, no, it's the other way around. All the other scholars, believe it or not, actually read too little into it, and Rushdie alone is getting it right. So though she sees herself as opposed to Rushdie's position, she acknowledges that Rushdie is seeing the truth that was in these ancient documents, which are the foundation stones for our faith today. Okay, let me see if I can read the whole comment. Jordan, good one. I'm going to pin it to see it. Obviously, it's going to be the only way to see it all. Jordan asks, here's a question. How is art and craftsmanship important to the Christian? Is it as important to the work of dominion to make things beautiful as to make them more useful? Well, so this, uh, Rashtuni would spend a lot of time dealing with the craftsmen who developed the tabernacle and these columns and he uh, just was delighted in the notion that these, these things were made for beauty, and he would actually uh, almost deepen his voice and say it more resonantly, uh, because to him it was a marvel that things that were had beauty, that bore true beauty, uh, glorified God in a way uh, different than, say, how a craftsman would be doing it. But skill with the musical instruments, I think, is uh, in particular is useful. You have the visual arts and you have the... Um, Tripsichorean arts, which is dancing, and then you have uh, the musical arts and, and other formats, drama, etc., etc. Yeah, there was the article. Um, the problem that Chalcedon poses that deals with uh, Dr. Molly Worthen's uh, critique of Rashtuni and the interesting concessions that she makes about his work. So, when we're talking about, let me get that pin position back in. I guess I have to repin it and rebring it up. How is art and craftsmanship for now? Let's talk about art versus craftsmanship. And I'm going to use my favorite example, which is Johann Sebastian Bach. Was he an artist or a craftsman? In his view, and in the view of Hindemith, he was a craftsman, not an artist. And uh, so he believed there was a craft that can be taught to your children. And this, uh, and he did, in fact, teach to his children. And this is consistent with phrases used in uh, Second Chronicles, is it? Maybe it's First Chronicles twenty-five eight and thereabouts. Let me pull out the passage. Okay, yes, um, First Chronicles. This is about the um, those who prophesy with harps. Uh, prophesying is important. Psalteries and with symbols, number of the workmen. Uh, and then verse three of uh, First Chronicles twenty-five of Jeduthun, the sons of Jeduthun, Gedaliah, Keri, uh, Jeshasiah, Hashabiah, and Mattathiah, six under the hands of their father Jeduthun, who prophesied with the harp to give thanks and to praise to the Lord. 
And then uh, the conclusion of all these things here was in sixth verse. All these were under the hands of their father for song in the house of the Lord, with cymbals, psalteries, and harps for the service of the house of God, according to the king's order to Asaph, Jeduthun, and Heman. So none of them with their brethren that were instructed in the songs of the Lord, even all that were cunning, and that was skilled in their craft, were two hundred fourscore and eight. And they cast lots, ward against ward, as well the small as the great, the teacher as the scholar. So they mixed, put everyone together, and so they, they learned because the, t the teachers, the masters were there with the apprentices, the students, and they all learned together. And so there was a sharing of the body of knowledge for the propagation of music. And the, so the musical ministry and the comp composition and the pr performance of it was all father, <coughs> father to son which is a, a huge deal, it means that it can be uh, inculcated by being taught to the next generation, these particular crafts. And uh, you look at what Bach, the exercises he gave to his nine-year-old son, uh, and they're just stunning what he thought was achievable if you just learn it. And so Bach himself said, what I've achieved, I've achieved by working hard. If anyone works as hard as I do, they will achieve just as much. So he denied that he was an artist with any kind of special gift. He held that diligence was the key to everything that he did. And he's regarded as one of the greatest musicians who ever lived and walked the earth. And in fact, we have fallen a far downhill from where he was. You know, so he's the pinnacle, and it's kind of our bad, if you will, that we have dropped the ball that was passed to us by him. And so one of the things that I call for is a recovery of the ball, you know, scramble for the ball, get it, bring it back into play, and then move it down the field again like we did. So on the musical arts, I know that there's a, they're important because they're mentioned over and over again in Scripture. And uh, perhaps um, someone last time we had a Q&A, uh, I said I can supply my five articles on music, which I have a PDF on. Anyone more interested in seeing all of them and reading them, send me a private message and I'll go ahead and send them to you. So it's a PDF that has my articles from 82, 1983, 1985. That one is not generally found easy to find because that publication doesn't exist anymore. Then 2001, In Faith for All of Life, and then again in 2010, my article on Bach uh, appeared in Faith for All of Life and explains a little bit more about this concept of the arts. So we should not have to make this choice. Now, if you look at it from a so-called Malthusian perspective, right, <laughs> which I hate to do because that's a humanistic way of looking at it, but they basically say if you're scrambling for just to eat, then chances are you're not going to have a lot of time to write novels and symphonies. Uh, you're going to be focused on that which is necessary you know, to survive. But once survival uh, parameters are in place, then we can start to go a little bit farther along, and then when there's more and more time that permits it. So, but in the Bible, in Scripture, provision was already made for some of these arts, the visual arts and the musical arts in advance, so they were part of the kingdom of God from the get-go. So the kingdom of God was not a dry thing. It was rich with artistic or creative invention, if you will, craftsmanship. So this is the term, the cunning artificer, the craftsman, and uh, God, first, perhaps one of the first mentions of God putting his Holy Spirit on any individual was artists. So I think if God thought, who am I going to, am I going to put, give it to the workmen or am I going to give it to these guys who are going to be building these beautiful things? And God then inculcates these guys. Uh, in fact, it was the cover story for uh, Faith for All of Life just a few, in the last couple of years. 
concerning uh, the, the, the spirit-filled men. That would be the article, the spirit-filled men. And Rush Dooney's actually wrote that particular article by the title, and we featured that on the front cover with a picture of a man working um, some patterns and some artwork, um, ornamentation into some wood on the front cover. So, follow up on that question, we put it and see the rest of it. Okay, thank you. Visual art is more my question, but they are very related. And it's very helpful about Bach's view of himself as a craftsman. I'm very interested in Christian craftsmanship in metal and woodworking and uh, making tools and architecture beautiful and how that all fits into the Christian calling. Well, I think Christian calling is this, is always going to be excellence in all things. And what one of the reasons that we probably don't have that is that our sense of taste is um, messed up. There's a phrase in Psalm 119, it's got a lot of verses, 176 verses, so I sometimes can't always get to the one I want. And I hope I can, especially since the interpretate the uh, trans the uh, translation is not a good one. Here it is. It's sixty six, but the um, King James doesn't give the full sense of it. Teach me good judgments and knowledge, for I have believed thy commandments. So it, this word "good judgments" is actually better translated. Teach me right affections. And the word affection is our aesthetic, our aesthetic sense. Teach me right aesthetic sense. Give me a good sense of what is beautiful, in other words, and what is, um, and these things are mentioned in Philippians, right? Whatsoever is beautiful, whatsoever is excellent, these things. Um, and so here it is in Psalm 119, verse 66. That word judgment, which is a bad translation, affections is better, is from the Hebrew word ta'am, which comes from the word to taste. Give me right taste. Teach me taste. That's why when I teach on music, I say, do not foist your subjective sense of good music on your children. Let them learn from Bach forward and let them develop their sense. Don't impose your taste. Because for all I know, it, it, you think this is good and this is bad. The children are not going to be able to reason that um, biblically if you impose that. Rather, they need to pray for and God will grant them as they study right affections, a good sense of aesthetic judgment. Uh, some Christians have done some interesting work in this area. Uh, David uh, Estrada Herrera, I, can't always, I always have a problem with the full name, he's a hyphenated last name, but he's worked some in aesthetics, and we published some of his works. And obviously, he's a good independent thinker in these areas. So there's, uh, so it's something where Christians are a little bit behind. Sometimes um, the problem is because we don't have a sense of the biblical vocation to begin with, if you believe that the only spiritual things are the full-time ministry, then everything else is inferior. And so whether you're doing, you know, you're a plumber or you are a musician, well, somehow people say, well, plumber's probably a little bit more useful than musician. But, you know, they didn't call for, look at Elisha, right? <laughs> In, uh, was it Second Kings 3? He didn't say call for a plumber and have him. He said call for someone to play the harp and I'll prophesy. So there's there's something important about it, at least the music. And as far as the visual things, uh, it's more that these are indicated by the general sense or tenor of scripture. I hate using tenor of scripture arguments because what normally happens is that when you say the tenor of scripture is X, it's just used to pit it against actual explicit scriptures which say the opposite of X. 
you know, people will say, well, the, the general sense of the tenor of Scripture is this, but it actually defies individual verses. At that point, I'm saying we need an exegetical faith and not the tenor argument. But in this particular instance, we have pieces that fit together and the tenor all coordinate together uh, in a positive sense, at least with the visual arts. Uh, the artist can also be used for different important things. Now, this that may not strike you as an art verse, but in a sense it just indicates, uh, because there's no sense of a pattern, but it is interesting to me, uh, in Zechariah 1, uh, 19, 20, 21, we're talking about the four horns uh, that are there to scatter Israel, but uh, the Lord showed me four carpenters, which is really more smiths or blacksmiths. The blacksmith, of course, his function here is going to now to trim the horns, to fray the horns. And so so for, if, if for every oppressor you have a blacksmith. Now that word is interesting because it comes into the Greek, but the translation from the Hebrew, into the word technon. And technon was Joseph the carpenter, Joseph the technon, he was not just a carpenter. He was involved in masonry and other things, too. And Jesus, we talked about it some time ago, and I don't have all the details on the tip of my tongue or the top of my head anymore, uh, but we talked about uh, the actual work that Jesus learned, uh, and there was, there was not merely the functional, but also the artistic and the aesthetic part was, was built into that. So, oh, thank you for that ground control. Give me that. Yes, I think that's an important verse, and again... Uh, I, I don't credit the King James uh, very, very well for the translation, but, but it could be because that these terms, um, judgment, we usually think in terms of judicial sense, but here the sense was good judgment uh, about things that are aesthetic. Taste, give me good taste, right affections. And so I think that better, give me right affections, that my subjective sense of good and beautiful is informed by God. This is no different in my view then when James says, he lacks wisdom, let him ask God and God will give it. So uh, we sh how many people do I know pr pray for God's wisdom and or pray for right affections and right judgment to set their hearts on the right things and not the wrong things? Because yeah? our hearts are tend to be fickle and we need to be stayed on the Lord and anchored better than we tend to be. So, all right, good questions, those. Uh, ground control, any more questions? Or follow-ups to questions? Sorry, I bumped the tripod. It's funny when we do these um, events in a different time of the year, the sun is heading toward a different um, tropic, in the Tropic of Cancer, Tropic of Capricorn, and we don't, don't normally have the sunlight problem up there in the corner. But now we know, <laughs> as we approach the winter solstice, that in fact, uh, I'm going to have to move or be at the office instead of here at home doing the broadcasts. Diane has a question. Okay, can you pin it? Because I haven't seen it. It is pinned. Okay, I don't see anything pinned right now. Let me look backward. Maybe, okay, tell you what, repin it, and maybe it'll pop to the bottom of my feed and I'll see it. Maybe you can't repin it if it's already pinned, so maybe unpin and repin. How we suffer with this technology. And part of it is I'm using very, very, well, iPhone 7 Plus. But if I were using an iPad, I probably would be able to see everything. But I'd be glad to take Diane's question if I can see it. If not, I'll just go ahead and scroll back. And see. Oh, here it is. Okay. So, uh, question is, can I see more of it? Okay, I'll pin it. Now that it's there. Come on, come on. What's funny? I 
I say pin. Regarding life after death, would you address the discrepancy of Luke 23 to 40, 23, 43, I imagine is what she means, where the thief is promised to be in paradise today and John 11 and 13 where Lazarus, and I can't see the rest of it now, I want to see the rest of it. If I see pin, okay, thank you, now I see the pin. Ground control can pin it, and I couldn't. Maybe it's because two people can't pin it at once. Here's the whole question, and, I'm, and, it, and it might be a little bit harder than I can answer today, but I will see. Uh, Diane Williamson, regarding life after death, which is the intermediate state, would you address the discrepancy of Luke 23, 43, where the thief is promised to be in paradise today, and John 11, 13, where Lazarus remains asleep until Jesus resurrects him? It appears that Lazarus did not go to heaven and return. At least he didn't write a book about bright lights, and I guess I get the, get the gist of the rest of it. I get to see six lines of it. So is there a, a collision between these two things? Well, let's be clear that on the cross, when Jesus, Jesus is going to um, make the atonement and happen, and so what, the, what he's promising to the thief on the cross is going to be a post-atonement event after Christ has paid the price, and he becomes then, very shortly, the uh, um, will be the first fruits of the resurrection as well. So there's a difference in what happens. Okay, now I see the whole thing. Funny how that is. If he didn't write a book about bright lights and traveling through a tunnel that we know of, then Enoch, who was taken up. So, uh, the Enoch case and Elijah are usually the two that are brought to bear on this connection. But So the question is, what happens afterward? So uh, Lazarus was definitely in the abode of the dead and probably was what they call Abraham's bosom, as some folks like to call it, because there's a parable that describes a little bit about that. But I think that there's something very, very different at the time that uh, the atonement is made. And, and so Christ's promise is very, very good to him. And Christ, of course, uh, treats death as an enemy. And he therefore goes specifically to Lazarus with the intention of raising him out of the grave after four days uh, and to resurrect the body. Now, that was not a full resurrection. It's more of a resuscitation because they make a distinction that he did die again. In fact, there were even plans potentially for uh, the... Uh, <laughs> The Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, to say, well, you know, if he dies again, maybe we can help that along so we don't have this guy walking around saying, I was dead for four days and I'm back again and Jesus did it. So this is a walking credential for Christ and we need to erase it and rub it out. So it was a resuscitation, uh, but he was very, very much dead and was brought back. Uh, that simply shows that Jesus has the keys of death in Hades. This is asserted in Revelation 1. It's not the only place where it is asserted. But certainly it's a profound point that he's in control of these two things. The other place where I think it's asserted, except in visual form, but let's take a look at it first in the um, in the Revelation. He has the sharp two-edged sword. I have the keys of hell and of death. This is Revelation 18. I thought it was the 18th verse. Uh, and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and death. And so, or hell and. Uh, Hades and death. So these are things that are under Christ's control. So that uh, pictures about Christ where he says, you know, he uh, will do, blow away, they say, the man of sin with the breath of his lips. This is actually a quotation from uh, Isaiah 11, verse 4, indicating again that the Messiah has control over death. And therefore what he says about it, it has to obey him. Okay, Isaiah 11, 4. 
with righteousness shall he judge the poor, reprove with equity for the meek of the earth, and he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. So his own breath, he speaks it, and it's done. And this is the point that is uh, breath alone. So he has control. He says it, and it is done. And so if he says, Lazarus, come forth, Lazarus comes forth. Death must release its hold on Lazarus. And ultimately, he will do the exact same thing on the last day. He will, the last enemy to be destroyed is death, and Christ destroys death, because all these enemies are to be destroyed and put under Christ. So he's actively destroying death. Uh, and he has this right because he controls it. One other element of his control of death, I think, is evident in Revelation 6, where the, he, the, man, the one depicted as riding on the white horse, Christ writes the, rides, rides the white horse in Revelation 6 and Revelation 19, and he sat, he that sat upon him had a bow, and a crown was given him, and he went forth conquering. And then behind him come the red horse, which is war to take away peace, and people kill each other. And behind, and then there's the black horse, which was death by starvation. And then there was the pale horse, and death and hell followed him, and, and they were given power unto them. Uh, so you see that these death-dealing instrumentalities follow the white horse. They are not in front of the white horse. They follow where he goes. So death is in total, uh, totally controlled on, and by Christ. This actually is a comfort to the Christian to realize de uh, Christ holds the keys of death in hands. He can unlock them. He can destroy them. They serve his purpose alone. And they are not uh, in a position to set aside or confound Christ's purposes for the world. You see, uh, if people say, well, that's the end of the Messiah. He's dead. He's crucified. He's gone. Well, death could not hold him. It's that simple. And because death cannot hold him, it cannot hold us if we're in him, in the Messiah and the cruise. Now, Enoch and uh, Elisha, these are the two cases where uh, there was a twinkling of an eye, rather, and so they passed through death essentially instantaneously, if you want to call it that. Uh, the corruptible put on incorruptible. And so what happened to them is not much different than what happens during the pageant of the conquest of death, after when death is destroyed. All the other enemies of Christ are laid in the grave first, and this is asserted in the final verses of Isaiah 66, is that the righteous walk around, but the, the wicked are all in the graves. They're in the ground. They don't exist anymore. <clears throat> they no longer, no longer encumber the earth, to use Warfield's phrase. So at that point, then the last enemy to be destroyed, because there are no other, no other human enemies of Christ, and he never had anything other than human and angelic enemies, <clears throat> then death is destroyed. And, it, and it's destroyed two ways. It loosens its hold on Christ's children, those who are already in the grave, and the men then living cannot die. So there's a sense in which there was a, this blessing was visited on Enoch and on Elijah. Not Elisha, but Elijah. And so it's a kind of a pre-libation, a, a preliminary taste of what is to come. Because the scriptures are clear in Hebrews, it said, it's appointed for all men to taste death, right? And then the judgment. And uh, these two men... They did not, and the final generation will not, because death will be destroyed for them. So for Enoch and Elisha, and the final generation of Christians, they will not taste death. But that's because death has been already judged and destroyed, as, as it is. So these things, you, you have to put together a systematic theology to see how all the interlocking pieces fit. Uh, I don't think it's nearly as complicated as we make it. Uh, it's just that sometimes we get... Mm, hung up on, on certain things, little, a little detail, and maybe it's the bigger picture that matters more than little detail. And other times the little detail is, a, is an important piece of the puzzle. But the main thing to realize is that death serves Christ. Uh, 
It is a, uh, it has a purpose. It is something that Christ controls. It's reasserted, by the way, in Revelation 19. And again, we're confronted with the fact that Christ is in control of all death. And it has to do with the wrath of God, verse 15. And then we have the great feast. And uh, everyone essentially is, is dead. And uh, they were slain with a sword that proceeded out of the mouth of the Messiah, verse 21. So again, death itself is something that Christ is, 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 remember, it is appointed because it is a judgment against sin. It is you paying the wages for sin. Wages of sin are death. But then Christ conquers it through his own death. And that's why John Owen had that peculiar phrasing, the death of death and the death of Christ. So too, here, the thing that Christ controls, it is an enemy, and he sees it as an enemy in terms of Lazarus, his friend, and therefore he weeps because his enemy has gained a temporary uh, conquest over Lazarus. Christ fully knowing he's going to pull him out of the grave, yet he's still struck by the impact of the enemy on his friend, and it'll also strike him as well. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will scatter, and that's going to, it's going to happen. God's fellow will be struck, Zechariah 13, 7. Okay, let's see if there's anything new here. All right. Okay, I guess we're ready. Uh, close enough to closing. Send your Q&As. And like I said, we're, not, we're going to have a two-week hiatus. I'll be back on December 23rd. So I will not be here December 9th and December 16th due to a wedding. Now, Rush would always say, and this is an important point, I might even bring it up in the service, the wedding service, under Jewish culture, under the kingdom of God in the Old Testament, if you had a, uh, a funeral coming down the street this direction and a wedding procession coming down the street in this direction, the funeral service had to give way to the wedding service life, new life, and a new opportunities and new covenants took precedence over the burial of the dead. Today we have a very, very different point of view uh, because we don't see the beauty of Christian marriage. Uh, that's something that Tim Yarbrough is going to be speaking about in a Book of the Month Club broadcast in the middle of 2019. Don't miss that. But it's important to realize that in the, in the Christians should have a very, very high view of marriage and we should start to think about what Rashtuni said. Why is it that the funeral procession stops to let the wedding profession procession have priority because life is prioritized in scripture. Thanks for all listening today. We will see you all on December 23rd and I pray that holidays are well with you and all and we will be uh, glad to take more questions. So probably accumulate a few questions in the next two weeks. That's why I'll be able to review them in advance and we'll run through them as quick as we can. Thanks for your questions and uh, for those of you uh, listening in tomorrow, I will talk to, be talking to you about the foundations of social order with our Book of the Month Club broadcast. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Meat of the Word Q&A with Martin Selbretti. We pray that you have been edified by the content that you've heard on this episode. Please visit calcedon.edu for some great resources and reconstructionistradio.com to download your favorite audiobooks. Until next time, may the Lord richly bless you in all that you do.